Welcome this week to the Making Disciples Everyday podcast. I'm excited because we're going to get to hear from AB, that is Aaron Bryant, pastor at Avenue South Campus, uh, preaching on Revelation 4, 1 through 11, the throne room, uh, John showing up in the throne room where John goes to worship and is overwhelmed. And I'm really encouraged how AB gets us into that spirit, into that mood as we kick off Advent. So I pray you're encouraged by AB. I pray that you seek the Spirit's guidance on how you can uh, employ this text in this teaching to make disciples day by day as you go about your life. Appreciate you. We're going to continue worshiping by reading God's Word together. And I'm so grateful that you're here this morning, especially if you're a guest. You could have been anywhere on a Sunday morning, and so we're so grateful that you're here You know, listen, it was uh, a pretty dry summer, and the fall got off to a dry start, so I was thrilled that we got some rain yesterday. The rain was good. Uh, However, we got a lot of rain yesterday. I mean, a lot of rain, depending upon where you are in Middle Tennessee. And as the rain kept coming down, not in drop, but in sheets of rain, and as it beat on our roof and crashed against our windows, I found myself multiple times throughout the evening going to the blinds to look out in the front yard. Uh, Because that's where the Bryant family nativity is set up in the middle of the yard. Uh, These are plastic characters from the nativity scene. Mary and Joseph and shepherds and livestock. And there are all of these characters in a stable out in the middle of our yard that we put on display as a way to worship and celebrate Advent and the Christmas season. Uh, And so thank goodness with the storm and the wind and the rain Woke up this morning to find everybody was intact and right where they're supposed to be. All is right with the world. And that's what we think of when we think of Advent or Christmas. We think of those main characters in the birth narrative of Jesus. We think of baby Jesus. We think of his parents, his earthly parents, Mary and Joseph. We think of the shepherds and the wise men. That's why it may be intriguing to you as we think about where we're headed in our scripture today And for the next several Sundays during the season of Advent, we're going to be in the book of Revelation together. We're going to be in the book of Revelation. If you have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Revelation. It is easy to find and that it's located at the end of the New Testament in the back of your Bible. We want to encourage you to follow along with us, whether on your smartphone or with a Bible that you may have. You're welcome to use any of the Bibles. Take one home with you that's here in the church if you need one. But we're going to be in the book of Revelation And you may see the lights and the trees and the nativity scenes throughout our community and say, why are we going to spend the next four weeks in the book of Revelation? It's a great question, and I want you to hold that thought for just a moment, okay? As you're turning to Revelation, and we're going to be specifically in chapter 4, I want to remind you of a couple of things that are going to be helpful to us, not only today, but the next several weeks about the book of Revelation. Now, the word revelation in English, translated from Greek, in that language, it literally translates apocalypse. Apocalypse. So a little bit of an apocalyptic Christmas over the next four weeks for us. And revelation itself is very symbolic. Apocalyptic literature is symbolic. It's highly metaphorical. And there are vivid symbols and imagery and sometimes stuff that doesn't make a whole lot of sense when we read it on the surface or even study it for a long time. 
So what I want to do is I want to acknowledge that this morning. We're not going to be able to dig into all the symbolism and all the reality of what revelation might truly mean. And sometimes good, well-intended Christians become so obsessed with decoding the symbolism and the imagery that they miss what's right in front of them. Several years ago, someone gave me tickets to go see the Nashville Predators, and they said, listen, we're not going to use these. Would you like them? I thought we were just, oh, sure, yeah, I'll probably be in the upper deck somewhere. And they said, I hope it's okay, but these are right on the glass. I mean, they're right on the glass. You can feel them bang into the glass, and you're right there. And I was like, yeah, you know what? That's okay. That'll do. <laughs> I sat there in the glass, and I found myself halfway through the second period. I'm like, that is the biggest jumbotron I've ever seen. I've never seen a TV screen that big. Look how big this arena is. You could probably fit 20,000 people in here. And my buddy tapped me on the arm, and he's like, hey, hey, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking. At, like, this place is huge. I've never been right here. And you can, like, the jumbotron's right there. And he said, yeah, no, it's got four sides to it, right? Crazy. He was like, dude, you're missing the game. You're missing the game. You're so close, but you're looking at the big picture. You're missing what's right in front of you. And sometimes that's what we do with Revelation. We get overwhelmed by all of the chapters and all of the symbolism and all the futuristic things that are unfolding that we miss what's right in front of us. And what I want you to know about Revelation is this. Revelation was written from a Jesus follower, a man named John, who was worshiping on Sunday morning to a group of worshipers about whom we worship and why we worship him. That's what Revelation is about. That's what's right in front of us. Don't get overwhelmed at some of the things we read. Hang with me with some of the symbolism and the metaphor we're going to read. Don't miss what's right in front of us. This is a letter from a worshiper of God to other worshipers of God about whom we worship and why we worship him. And that's what Revelation is about. And I'm convinced that during the holiday season, none of us need any new information. That's just my assumption. There's no, not a lot of scientific research behind that. But I bet some of us, we're, we're just slowly coming out of our turkey coma that we, we enjoyed over the past several days over Thanksgiving. Some of us, you don't have to raise your hand or admit it, maybe just now regaining our consciousness from being out at 5 a.m. or unreasonable hours on Black Friday when even the Holy Spirit's not stirring. But you were out there. You were getting it done. So I get it. But most of us, the experiences that we are going through, the, the smells, the bells, the whistles, the relational things that have to take place over the holidays, we don't need any new information. We need to be reminded of what we already know so that we can hold on to it and so that it become, become the bedrock of our lives. Revelation is a letter written from a worshiper to other worshipers about whom we worship. So what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like for us to read a couple of verses and talk about it. Read a couple of verses and talk about it. And I'm not going to be able to pick out all of the symbolism, but I'm going, to, I'm going to hold on to and encourage you to hold on to a couple of things we see in this passage. Look with me in Revelation 4, 1 through 3. We'll stand in honor of God's Word at the end of our time together in Scripture, but let's read this together with our Bibles open now. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this, John says, I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. And the first voice that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. And the one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, and a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne." Now let's pause right there for a moment. I mentioned to you that this is a letter written from someone who's a worshiper of God. 
At the end of his life, John, a follower of Jesus, one of the original disciples, had gotten in trouble for believing and following and telling others about Jesus. In our day and age, you may be called intolerant if you say you believe that Jesus is the one true God, or that through Jesus there is only one way to eternal life. You may be made fun of. You may be called a simpleton for putting your faith in something that you can't tangibly touch but you know is true. But in John's day and age, people were, they were persecuted. They were exiled. And that's what happened to John. As a result of his faith in Jesus, he was put on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea where the Roman Empire thought, ha, from there you can't do anything on behalf of this God that you worship. And John was worshiping on Sunday morning. Chapter 1 tells us it was the Lord's Day. And while he was worshiping, God revealed a vision to him. God revealed some divine things to him that he wanted John to tell to Christians in the first century. And in chapters 2 and 3, if you go back and read Revelation later, you're going to see that John wrote down what God revealed to him. And he sent it to seven specific churches in the first century. But chapter 1 also says not only were those seven churches to be told what was unfolding in this vision, but that John was to write these things down so that future Christians would be blessed by them, could hear them and believe in those things. And so here we are reading a letter from a worshiper to worshipers about whom we worship. And John tells us this scene unfolds in the future in a literal place called heaven. And when John enters into heaven, there's a throne and there's someone seated on the throne. And anytime in Revelation you read, there was one seated on the throne, it's referring to God. It's not referring to Jesus. Jesus is God, but this is referring to God the Father. God the Father was seated on the throne, and he had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone. Your Bible might even say sardis stone. These are two different types of stone. When John sees this throne, and all throughout Revelation, John is trying to grab onto every bit of symbolism he can to explain to us what well, is quite literally nearly unexplainable. And John says, I see this throne, and God is on this throne, and the one on the throne, he, it looked as if it was made of jasper, and there's carnelian stone, which is a red stone. Now, jasper is a clear stone, like what we would call a diamond. And the appearance of the throne also had red or carnelian stone. And what's interesting about these things, it may not mean much to you as we read them, but in the Old Testament, the people engaged God by going to the priest. Before Jesus, you did not have direct access to God. You had to go to the priest. And the priest would hear your prayers and represent you to God. And God would speak to the priest, and then the, people would then the priest would speak to the people. And that's why we're so grateful for Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate high priest who removed the go-between so we could have direct access to God. But before that time, the priest would represent God to the people. And the priest, when they worshipped, they would wear certain things when they worshipped and led the people in worship. Now, I'm wearing a blazer today because it's, it's Advent, and I feel a little more festive and Christmassy when I throw on the blazer. Somebody asked me this morning, why are you dressed up? You wear jeans and flannels. I'm like, you know, I just want to wear a blazer. Some priests or pastors will wear a collar or a suit, like people who lead worship or from the platform, they might wear something depending upon the church or the context you're in. The priest in the Old Testament would wear certain garments, and one of them was they wore a breastplate on the front of their clothing that had 12 stones. And the 12 stones on that breastplate represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And the first stone on there was like a diamond. It was jasper. It was the first stone, and it was ordered that way. And it represented God's purity and his holiness. 
And the last stone was red. It was that carnelian stone. And it represented the end of that order, the first and the last. And it represented God's judgment or his wrath on things that are not right or unjust. And so when John sees the throne, he's reminded that the one on the throne was there in the beginning. He's holy, he's good, he's righteous. But he's also the one that will be there in the end who will address what is wrong and unjust in this world. He's the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the omega. And he will redeem and restore all that is wrong and all that is unjust and all that is broken when he sends his son Jesus back to return to the earth. Now, Christmas is a time where we celebrate, yes, 2,000 years ago, baby Jesus arrived, God in the flesh. The big word for that that we refer to in theology is called the incarnation. God became flesh and dwelt among us. That has happened, and we celebrate that on December 25th. But Advent is not only about our once-arrived king, but Advent is about our future king, past, present, and future king. I don't know if you know this, but Advent actually begins the Christian calendar. Some churches and denominations plan their services and what they preach and what they teach around the Christian calendar. And some of you may have grown up in a liturgical background. And believe it or not, Advent begins the Christian calendar. And Advent means coming or arrival. So actually, it's not just, hey, we can't wait for Christmas morning because we're going to celebrate that God became flesh. It's also a declaration, we can't wait until Jesus comes back. We can't wait until Jesus comes back. Because when God sends Jesus back, his second coming, his second arrival, because he is good and pure and holy and righteous, and because he can address sin and brokenness and eradicate evil and make everything that is unjust right and right every wrong, we can't wait for that day. Because intuitively we know there are things that are wrong and broken in our world. Now, some of us, we may feel offended, we may feel mistreated, and that's a good word of hope. I want you to think about who this letter was written to. Revelation was written to Christians and churches who were being persecuted, made fun of for their faith, hurt and harmed because they believed in Jesus. This was a word of hope and encouragement. Listen, God was there in the beginning, God will be there in the end. He sees all things. He knows all things. He's your advocate. He's your caretaker. He goes ahead of you as your leader. He comes behind you as your rear guard. He will take care of you, and he's always faithful to his promises. And that was a word of hope in difficult times. See, they didn't need new information about God. They needed to be reminded, it's okay, hang on, because Jesus has promised you to never leave you or forsake you. And that promise has come true through his finished work on the cross and the power of the resurrection. And we need to hear that word today. Some of us in this room are excited about Christmas. Like I started playing Christmas music before Halloween and somebody read me the right act about that. Like you violated major North American holiday protocol. You can't do that. You can't play it on the way to a Thanksgiving gathering. I thought to myself, well, Christmas is going to happen whether I play this or don't, and so are the other things. It's all going to unfold. Some of us are excited. We can't wait, right? And even walking in this room, a couple people in the first service said, man, it feels warm. It feels inviting. The Christmas trees are here. The holly is hung. Like, we even got fake snow on the platform. It's like straight up Christmas. This is great. But for some of us, it's not as exciting and I always want to acknowledge that at this time of year. I think we need to. Some of us have had a really difficult 2019, and we can't wait 
for the next four weeks to fly by because I cannot wait for 2020. Come on, come on, come on, 2020. Can't get here soon enough. Some of us feel that way, right? I look around this room. Some of you have lost loved ones in the past several weeks or months. You got difficult things going on at work where, like, when you tie your shoes in the morning, you brush your teeth, you're like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this day. I don't even want to drive to work. Like, that's real. That's legit. And this is a word of hope 2,000 years ago. This is a word of hope to us today. All the promises of God come true in the person of Jesus, who we celebrate our once and future king. And he will return, and he will right all wrongs, and he will redeem all that is broken. And we are grateful for that. We don't need new information. We need to be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ. That's why we worship. And that's what John sees. There's so much more there we can't get to. But look at what it says in verse 4. Around the throne, there were 24 thrones. And on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. There's been a lot of debate about what these 24 thrones around God's throne represent. A lot of debate. But the most basic understanding of this is that those 24 thrones represent from the Old Testament scripture and history, the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people. It also represents the 12 original disciples, or rather apostles, from the New Testament. The thrones around God's throne represents the church, God's people from the Old Testament, God's people from the New Testament. It includes the church, past, present, and future. And what this symbolizes is there are people gathered around the throne. The church, the people of God are gathered around the throne. And, and they're not dressed in rags and they're not dressed in, in even blazers or jackets. What are they dressed in? They're dressed in white clothes. And in heaven, wearing white clothes means you are pure, you are right, you are acceptable, you are pleasing to God. You can be in his presence. And what this means is that the church, in the future, we will be gathered around the throne of God. That's what John's revealing to us. And we'll be dressed in white. We'll be dressed in white because on the cross, when Jesus laid down his perfect reputation and his perfect self in exchange for our brokenness and our sin, that's been called the great exchange. He gave us his reputation and covered us. He clothed us. I have a robe that I only wear at Christmas time. Like, you know, I saw all these movies where people put on slippers and then they put on a robe and they just walk around the house at Christmas time and it feels kind of holiday-ish. Like, I don't ever get to wear the robe. It's like 70 degrees last week around here. I can't wait to wear the holiday robe. I just want to... Being robed or clothed is what God has done for us through our faith in Jesus and Him giving us Himself. We've been given, wrapped, covered, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And when you get to heaven, you won't have to hide or wear a mask or pretend to be the person that you want other people to see you as. You can fully know God and be fully known by him with no shame, no guilt, no embarrassment. Right and righteous just as he is because of what Jesus has done for us and because of our faith in Jesus. They're clothed in white. That is your reputation in Christ. You don't need new information. You need to be reminded of who you are in Christ and they have crowns on their head. God has given them honor and authority, and they're there with him in heaven. And there were flashes of lightning in verse 5. There are flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder came from before the throne. And seven fiery torches were burning. Hang with me through this imagery, which are the seven spirits of God. And something like a sea of glass that was almost like crystal was also before the throne. And there were four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back. They were around the throne on each side. Verse 7, the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. 
Now listen, you may be wondering, great, I just want to open presents in three weeks. Why do I need to know the imagery of a lion, an ox, an eagle? This is a weird animal with a face like a man. What's up with that? Well, here's what's interesting. This was written to a group of people who were being mistreated by Roman emperors. Now, the Roman emperors of the latter half of the first century were guys named Nero. Even if you don't know a lot about Nero, you probably know him by reputation. Not a good guy, was not nice to Christians. Domitian, not a good guy, were not nice to Christians. And these Roman emperors sat on thrones. And oftentimes they would sit on wooden thrones covered in gold. And sometimes the thrones had faces of these animals. Because the people thought that the lion, like that's the top of the food, the wild animals, the king of the jungle, that's the lion. But, but the animals that have been domesticated, that you use, whether it be for farming or for pets, the ox, the cattle, like that's the best of the domesticated animals. The eagle, well, that's like the best of anything that can fly in the air. The eagle is tops. And man, of all of creation, man can reason and he has intellect. Of all the created things that can reason and has a mind, man is at the top and the pinnacle of that creation. And these kings and these emperors would sit on thrones that had these faces carved into them as if to tell the people, hey, I'm the king, and I have dominion over things that are wild. I have dominion over things that are domesticated. I have dominion over the earth and the air, and I even have dominion over you, which was not an encouraging message when they used their power and their authority to mistreat and to be unjust. So every time you hear the word throne and throne and these animals around the throne, one of the things that people didn't like to hear back then was throne because it made them think of a king or an emperor who was not nice and used their power and authority to mistreat them. The word throne is used more than 10 times in these 11 verses in chapter 4. And it's used more than 40 times in the book of Revelation. And what God is doing and giving to John to give to those seven churches in the first century and to give to the people at Avenue South is to introduce a different type of throne. You know kings and rulers and emperors who misuse their authority. And even if they're good moral people, they're broken, they're fallen, they make mistakes. But watch this. Look at what it says in verse 8. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, and they were covered with eyes around and inside. And day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And the reason they worship God is God is unlike any other king that anyone has ever known. Because God doesn't use his authority and his power to hurt or to harm or to remind us, I'm God and you're not, take that. There's a reverence and an awe and a respect that we should have that God is God and we're not. And we don't need to forget that. But God gives us a picture here. Listen, I am Lord of everything. I'm Lord of everything that's wild. I'm Lord of everything that's domesticated. I'm the Lord of the land and the sea and even over humanity, the pinnacle of creation. I am king over all of it. But I want to use my power and authority to bless and to love and to serve you, the created. And so one of the things God did is he poured himself into the person of Jesus Christ to come. And Jesus said, I have not come to be served, but to serve. And the ultimate way that Jesus served us is by laying down his life for us on the cross. God is unlike any other king this world has ever known because he uses his power and authority to build relationship with the people he's created. That's what God wants more than anything, to create a people he can be in relationship with. And that's who Jesus is, the once king and future king. 
And so God is giving the people a new picture of what a king looks like and how he uses his throne. And this was a word of hope and encouragement for the people who were facing difficult times or hardships or maybe they would need to remember this in the days and years ahead. And when they realize who God is and what he's done for them, they just, they want to respond. They got to do something. And really that's all worship is. Worship is simply revelation and response. Worship is revelation and response. Say revelation. And now say response. That's it. That's what worship is. God reveals himself. This is who I am. This is what I want for you. This is what I've done for you. And the response of these creatures is to say, holy, holy, holy is God for who he is and what he's done. We want to worship you. And look at what it says in verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, when all of creation worships God, the 24 elders fall down. That means the church. That's us. The church falls down before the one seated on the throne. That's where that reverence and that respect comes from. He's God and we're not. We're so grateful for who you are and what you've done for us. And they worship the one who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne. They were wearing crowns earlier in this passage because God had, he had judged them and found them in right relationship. And they were clothed with white clothes and they were given crowns and places of honor and seats or thrones to sit on, to be there in heaven with him. And when the people see that all of creation is worshiping God and he reveals himself for who he is and what he's done, now the church wants to worship him and they take off what God's given them and they return it to him. And I don't know if you listen to the group or the band casting crowns and you, maybe you did not know literally where they get the phrase or the title for their group. This is it. It's a people who are so grateful that God would use his power and authority to enter into relationship with humans and to bless us through the person of Christ that they feel as if they owe everything to him. You know, that's one of the things we do on Sunday morning, um, and, and we're going to do it in just a few minutes, but in the book of Acts, we see that when the church gathered on Sunday, they sung psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They publicly read scripture together. Someone would preach it or proclaim it. Uh, they would pray together, but they would also worship through giving they would bring in their financial resources to meet needs in their church and to identify ways that God was at work in their community like we do and say, are there financial needs we can help and bless those who are less fortunate, those who God's put on our radar so we can love them well and, and hopefully earn the right to share with them why we're doing this and that we want them to know Jesus and the plan and the purpose that he has for them. In just a moment, we're going to worship through giving. It's a small way that we say, look, this is your stuff, and we, love, we owe you everything. So here's just a small portion. It's a true story, but several years ago, a dear saint said to me, like, I don't have a lot of money, and I don't have a lot of stuff, but I cannot believe that God would send Jesus to lay down his life for me. I, if I were Jesus, I wouldn't die for me. I'm not worth it. That's what they said. And they said, when we pass the offering baskets, do you know what I feel like I should do? I feel like I should go stand in the basket because that's all I can give him. I just want to give him all of me. And that's what this passage is saying. We are so grateful that if God never did anything for us other than sending his son to be our savior and to give us salvation, we owe him everything. And they respond with thanksgiving and with worship. That really does help this time of year. As a side note, it puts things in perspective, right? There's nothing wrong with having a Christmas list and saying, I, I would like this. If you put this in the stocking, I'm totally good with that. That'll be on point. There's nothing wrong with that. But knowing that, oh my goodness, if we have salvation, God, you are so good and that is enough. 
a proper perspective of whom we worship for who he is and what he's done, it really does help put other things in perspective, right? It rearranges what we look for and what we give our affections to in this life. And the people were so grateful. They just wanted to worship God for who he is and what he's done. And that's what Revelation is about. It's a letter from a worshiper of God to other worshipers of God about whom we worship and why we worship him because he's worthy of our praise for what he's done. So in verse 11, they say, Lord God, you're worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you've created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. And that's what Advent is about. That's what Christmas is about. Yes, the first arrival of Christ in the flesh, but he is coming again and he is worthy of our praise and worship for who he is, what he's done, the once, present, and future king. That's why we worship. And so one of the things we want to give you an opportunity to do this morning, if you haven't yet, is to worship. Even if you went through the rhythms of mumbling the songs, or maybe your, your heart wasn't warm and you weren't ready, we want to give you a chance to worship, and to at least, if you're a follower of Jesus, to tell God he's worthy of your worship and he's worthy of our praise. So let me encourage you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment.